0: This is Fintech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed fintech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the Fintech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson, and this is another edition of of Not Fintech Investment Advice, which must mean that we are joined by the man, the myth, the legend, the soon-to-be father of two, everyone's favorite fintech nerd, Simon Taylor. Simon, thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. Oh my goodness, my
1: FOMO for money 2020 was insane, but you guys kept me sane with all of the content you've been cranking out. So thank you, Alex, for having me. It feels feels like there's a bit of a fintech love-in, right? It's cold and wintry out there in the fintech markets, but this community has rallied around each other in a way that is just astonishing to see. So it's so fun to be in this industry and so fun to get to chat about this kind of stuff. I know that I don't mean to sound all like schmaltzy,
0: but... You know, sometimes you got to bring the wholesome, and today's that day. No, I mean, that's true. And I will say, for listeners who are looking for more wholesome and who are looking for more sort of human content in the world of fintech, Simon, you've been on a couple other podcasts. I'm not taking it personally at all. I'm not taking it personally because I know this is your your first love. But you made some excellent additions uh, or appearances in other podcasts. Can you give us a quick plug on those? Well, you should check out those podcasts. Just regardless. So FinTech Family Hour
1: is a great show. Those guys get the CEOs on. But the episode of Are You Human I did recently (laughs) with with Zach and Kristen was very fun. Alex, I know you've done that as well. Really nice to see a human side of people that you know in the industry like that's a really fun way to get involved and then i also was involved in fintech friends which the guys mm. at this week in fintech do which again yeah. was a kind of a conversation where you get into you know why are you in this industry why do you care about it what motivates you and it's sort of not the stuff about 1033 and it's not the stuff about the latest buzz failing so it might not grab yeah. the headlines as easily but i think it's kind
0: of why we're all here in the first place. So, you know, you, you might enjoy that stuff. Yes. Well, folks should definitely check it out. It's magnificent content and uh, definitely gives you a different view into Mr. Taylor, some things I didn't know about you, despite the fact that we're friends and we've known each other for a while now. So it's great to dig a little bit deeper. We, as listeners of this podcast know, are going to be doing our fintech content. Simon is all caffeinated up with, is it Pepsi Max? Is that the uh, drink of choice? That
1: is correct. That is correct, which no longer
0: exists in the United States sucks to be you guys did we have like qualms about like safety or like nutrition what's our hang up that like you guys are just like nah, we're good i, I don't know because usually it's the other way around like you guys i was gonna wash, say like that's not us you know like we love bad things for our bodies
1: washing chickens with chlorine and all kinds of <laughs> you, you'll do anything
0: like the
1: use like ooh, no oh get that stuff out
0: but uh but except know. for pepsi max
1: apparently but hey, you know, I think that they go really deep with the advertising on Pepsi Max with football and Lionel oh, Messi okay. and all of that sort of stuff. So it's kind of harder to kill the brand, but also Pepsi in the United States is losing. So it That's tries true. to copy Coke Zero by doing Pepsi Zero and then also made it
0: taste disgusting. So, <laughs> so uh, just like completely out on that, completely 100%. This is not fintech investment advice, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, I um it's funny you say that because uh when I was in Las Vegas for money 2020, I saw Zach for like, 15 seconds cuz he's sprinting around in like a million different directions but I got to give him a hug and I did give him my version of Pepsi Max which is my fast lane tea so I was able to give him a box of that before he ran off to do something else so oh. Simon when I see you in person I'll make sure to give you a box of that Please well.
1: do I need this in my life I need tea that can replicate the the real experience of that caffeine hit hit me.
0: (laughs) It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. So I've had my tea. You are consuming your 19th Pepsi Max of the day. So we are all set and ready to go. This is not actually investment advice, Simon. I was thinking probably in a lot of the other universes out there in the multiverse, you are probably a really well-respected and long tenured VC working at some very prestigious firm. So I feel like you have the brain for this, but like in this universe, this isn't your day job, right? Yeah, no, the God bless Spider-Man and the
1: multiverse, because that's the perfect metaphor for this. And yes, I've been playing the new Spider-Man game in any moment I can, and it's amazing, and you should play it. It's amazing. It is amazing, yes.
0: It's so good.
1: But video game nerding aside there is definitely something to be said for enjoying looking at companies and asking the standard VC question. What's their moat? What makes this defensible? Is that a big enough market? Right. But as a fintech nerd, it's even better because it's sort of, you don't have to care whether this business succeeds necessarily. What we're here to do is to take the lessons from that business and be like what can i learn from this and why might this succeed and why might it not and so you get this wonderful space of where you get to be not always making a case to an investment committee you're not always trying to prove it and then also you don't have to go to bat for your company even if they're not the category leader like vcs yes. have to back their company so we can be i think hopefully a little bit more i don't know Just uh, transparent and blunt about our observations, because we have the good fortune of being that. People, you need VCs to back you. You need them to die in the wall and just be like pushing you all the
0: way. But you also need different voices. And I hope we can be that. Absolutely. That's what we're going to do. And as always, Simon and I have brought two companies each to the table. Mr. Taylor, as the taller and smarter of the fintech analysts on this call, you get to go first. All the first one I'm going to go with is in a company called Aleph. I think it's called A-L-E-P-H. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I saw this one. I, I haven't dug into it. So tell me why they fascinate you. If
1: every spreadsheet was going to be a SaaS company, this is the inversion of that idea. So what they've okay. done is they've pulled every bit of data into your favorite spreadsheet. And I find that super interesting because for two reasons. One, it's an inversion. But two, the future of spreadsheets is better spreadsheets. Like, you cannot kill this thing. It's incredibly sticky. And why is it sticky? Because it solves all those weird edge cases. I just want to try and get this cut of data right now to try and answer this particular question. And mm-hmm. if you speak to anybody in fp a or accounting, you can take their life, but you cannot take their spreadsheet from them because <laughs> that's right. that spreadsheet does that thing that they need for that use case better than any SaaS tool ever could, no matter how much you try and do it. So this is yeah. flipping that on its head. And then I thought okay that's kind of cool but isn't this just a macro isn't this just mm. like pull poli- like couldn't you do this yourself and then I noticed sure. that no wait companies like Zapier like Notion and Y Combinator are the customers I'm like, okay, those companies are not idiots. Like Zapier is a company that you use to kludge stuff together. That's, (laughs) right. they are the company that builds things that kludge things together. They could kludge things together if they wanted to. So why are they using this? That really stuck out to me. And then it made me come to the conclusion there must be something that they're doing in there and how they're extracting the data, normalizing it, cleansing it, making it available to that spreadsheet And all of the functions within that spreadsheet and making it real time, that, I suspect, has solved a bunch of problems along the way. And then I think about it from a fintech perspective, from financial services, how many companies exist to kill spreadsheets that does this Mm -hmm. threaten? And how many parts of the fintech industry would use this? So that's why I got excited. What are your thoughts when you see it? What are your observations? Did you feel the same? What did
0: you think when you saw it? I like it. Yeah, I'm a big counter positioning guy and so um if everyone else is trying to kill spreadsheets, be the one who's trying to save spreadsheets. That makes a lot of sense to me just as like a framing for how to attack the market or think about the opportunity differently. I mean, to your point, spreadsheets are funny, right? Because I feel like in a way, and I'm speaking sort of on behalf of like FP&A people who live in this world, I don't. I'm less of a spreadsheet person. That's not how my brain works, but for folks who do, and I've known and worked with a bunch over the years, your spreadsheet is like an expression of who you are almost, weirdly, right? Where it's like, because it's such a flexible, generic, powerful it's so tool true. that as you come up in the space, like, I almost feel like, and again, I'm, I'm sort of projecting here a bit, but like when you're interviewing for a job, you sort of bring your spreadsheet with you and then they ask you questions and it's like, well, how do you do this? It's like, oh, let me show you these tables and how I do this. And like, it's an expression of how you think and it's so like personal to you that, you know, when people wonder, like, well, why why won't they move off of spreadsheets and use the software that we built? What you're not understanding is you're attacking them by telling them to, like, lose the spreadsheet. Right. Like you are sort of trying to mount a frontal assault on a very core part of, like, how they think about themselves and their work and the value they provide. So the idea of being able to flip that on his head and say, we just want to let you do what you do better and we're going to solve all these other annoying problems for you, I really like it, right? In the same way that you're not necessarily giving a data scientist some new fancy algorithm or way of, you know, crunching data and making predictions, you're just going to go in and solve all the engineering problems for them to get, make it easier to get the data and then get out of their way, right? And this is kind of the FP&A equivalent of that. So I think that's really, really cool. I like that a lot. I guess the question I would have would be, like from a go-to-market perspective and maybe some of the customers you mentioned is an indication of this, but like, where does this fit best? Like what size company? How big is sort of the ideal FPNA team to take advantage of this? Are there specific verticals or use cases where this makes more sense or less sense? Like, I guess that's where some of the, I'm not going to say concerns I have, but just sort of question marks are. But conceptually, I think it's a really, really smart way to attack the market. Yeah, I think it's vertical agnostic because it's the spreadsheet at the front,
1: the company, the SaaS right. at the back. If there's right. SaaS at the front, then you've got a go-to-market question. But what's the go-to-market mm. of a spreadsheet? It's anybody who needs to figure stuff out. So right. <laughs> that's a pretty it's big... Broad market, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a big old market. And I need these random data sets for this one thing right now, and I need it to update immediately. Like, that's actually a big old market. I loved what you were saying about attacking the person. I think it's also not necessarily, you know, n- not all accountants are egotistical. Some of them are really lovely. I'm, oh, I'm, sure? I'm led to believe. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so I understand. Yeah. So I understand. But there's definitely something about interfering with the way they model the world. The yes. way I understand and interpret the world is expressed as a spreadsheet. Whoa. Whoa. That was a sentence. (laughs) That sounds weird when you say it out loud. But... No, it's,
0: it's really, I think, how they think,
1: right? And so... Now you want me to stick that into... Uh, some of the best SaaS tools the things like Notion that actually are very, very simple at the front, but that have mm-hmm. all of this flexibility and power at the back and allow you to do it. And so they build this rabid fan base to be able to, like, oh, I can, I can do this. I'll just do it in Notion. Well, I'll just do that in Notion. And it's like almost the simplicity
0: that makes them powerful. There's probably something to be said for this. I don't think it's a, a surprise necessarily that Notion's a customer of theirs, because to your point, like they probably have people who work there who think in these same terms. So I mean, maybe that's the like segment of the market you're going after. It's not a vertical, but it's like people who think about the world in terms of flexible, generic tools and customizing them. Maybe those are the teams and the people that this really appeals to Yeah. All right, dude, we're gonna do a good chunk of time on the left. Uh, what, what have you got for me? All right. So, my first one, not dissimilar, but in a very different area, is a company called HiFi. So, it's H I F I, all in capital letters. And they are essentially, uh, they work in the music business and they basically do data aggregation for musicians' incomes and royalty dreams. So, the problem that they set out to solve is that in the current age of the internet, music is very fractured as an industry, right? There's like a million different places that you can build up fans. There's a million different places that you can release your music. There are a bunch of different platforms that can help you monetize your music. And so for the average sort of musician, they have a very fractured income stream. And some of it is sort of streaming in, some of it is future royalty income that they'll be earning at a later date. And like for the Business folks that they work with, their managers or sort of ops people more on the business side, it's really like a full time job just to help those artists understand what is sort of my full financial picture, what's all the money I have today, how much money is coming in tomorrow, and like how can we optimize that. And so, as I understand it, Hi Fi's goal is to help much in the same way that like data aggregators in the open banking space do sort of connect to and pull all of that data together. And the benefit of that is twofold. One, they are helping to create sort of a unified picture of all of your income and royalty streams and future earning potential. And then two, they have introduced a product that allows for musicians to get paid every two-week cadence, like your standard nine-to-five worker, based on being able to essentially pull forward Royalty streams and future income that Hi-fi is confident that these musicians will be earning. So it's kind of like invoice factoring or receivables financing, but for musicians. Yeah.: If plaid and earned
1: wage access had a baby in music industry, it's aggregating the data, don't hate aggregate, yes. and then it's using that data to do earned wage access. It's, which is That's one of the main use cases exactly of Plaid sort of open finance data historically. Like people have done this a lot, but mm-hmm. music is hard because I need different data. And to your point, it's such a difficult place as a, as an artist to try and figure
0: out, well, can I pay the bills this month? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think you're right. I mean, it's um, if Plaid and an earned wage access company had a baby and then that baby was raised by an indie musician, this would essentially be the product that would come out of it and You know, I mean, I think using Plaid as sort of a stand-in to understand this problem is a good one, actually, because one of the the biggest challenges I think they have and will continue to have is getting access to the data, right? And while there are a lot of independent platforms that, you know, musicians use to um, stream their music or make it available or earn income, there's also, like, big platforms like Spotify, there's the record labels, there's, like, these other sort of massive entities in music— And unlike the open banking space, As I understand it, there's no real easy way to crack into those from a data perspective. And there's no 1033 coming to the rescue uh, unless the CFPB has a really broad interpretation for future versions of that rule in mind. So like how you crack open the full set of data and really get access to it is something that I'm kind of interested in as a problem. One other little tiny piece of information that I sort of sandbagged was they were just acquired by a company that I think you've heard of called Block, which also had acquired title a while ago, uh, somewhat controversially. And, you know, music, I think, is both a passion of Jack Dorsey's and theoretically a uh, sort of business area and a market that he wants to get into. So I wouldn't say this is necessarily doubling down on the title acquisition. I think if I said that, they'd probably get sued again. But I do think it is another tiny step in that direction and sort of saying, like, we're serious about this market.
1: Cash App has driven towards culture in a way that I think no other brand has, and music and culture are so unbelievably intertwined in popular culture in a way that almost no other art medium is. Perhaps video gaming's making it there, but it's still not as pervasive and not as everywhere for everyone as music really, really is. And so that sort of makes sense for them. This space is one that I got uh, interested in when I was head of crypto R&D over at Barclays. And I got introduced to Imogen Heap. Imogen is a multi-platinum recording artist. And she Mm -hmm. told me the story of having booked a massive advertising deal with some of her copyrighted works. I think it was in like the other side of the world. So it might have been Asia-Pacific. And sure. this advertising deal was going to be, you know, six figures. It was going to be huge. It's going to be meaningful. And she'd just had a baby. She wanted to get a house. So she was going to mm-hmm. use this um as as a meaningful part of the deposit for a house. So she started mm-hmm. the process. Uh the problem was between sort of having the contract and seeing that she'd booked the deal, the timeline for that money to hit her bank account was not one week or two weeks. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a month. It wasn't three months. It wasn't six months, it wasn't 12 months, it was 24 months for that money to hit. And she ended up losing out on that house, losing out on another house, knowing this money was coming, but not knowing when. And so much of that data stream, you know, this is an artist that's booked something through, this is a signed artist, they have a record label, but that record label is chasing down the Performing Rights Society's PRS, which exists in every market, and some of the Mm -hmm. markets have 10 or 20 of them. Like, the United States has one in every state. So they've (laughs) got local ones, regional ones. It looks like check clearing in the 60s, (laughs) but for have you just booked an advertising deal with somebody that's in our jurisdiction to chase the data down? And that, then, you put on top of it like all of the like contractual law that exists in music, and you can see why... Getting signed seems like a good deal because you get like a cash advance up front and then somebody else goes and deals with this cash flow issue. Um, and then you can sort of just collect a monthly paycheck or live off that monthly paycheck. Signing yeah. a record deal sounds great, but signing the other deals has all this issues. The reality is though, there's a music middle class that's growing in income because totally. Unless you are one of the biggest stars in the world, it's almost not worth being signed. You've kind of got all of these income streams and you can make significantly more money as an independent than you can ever signing and maybe making it, maybe not. If I've got a couple of million followers on YouTube and I'm getting a couple million downloads, like why would I ever sign? I've got everything there, but I have this other problem. And that's exactly where Hi-Fi plays. So I can completely understand it from, from that perspective. Uh, wish them well. I, I think it feels like a huge problem. What do you think their um, their chances are? What do you think the like future looks like for them?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you. I I think it is a good opportunity. I like that they're just trying to solve like kind of a boring problem, right? Right. I mean, we've talked about this before, but there's an element of to your point, like musicians just want to get paid like everybody else. You know, like we think of it as like this glamorous life and it's amazing, but like be nice to have a steady paycheck. And so being able to sort of put the work of chasing all those deals down on somebody else and have someone else be able to help you organize it, and then just being able to get a steady paycheck—that's worth you know, a couple percentage points that's worth paying for. And so I think that makes a lot of sense. I think with block, uh, given that they're real strong focus on this industry and just culture generally, I think that will help, uh, kind of accelerate their progress in this way. And, you know, I guess the other thought I had was music again, feels like this unique sort of special snowflake that, you know, is just kind of its own standard industry. And in a lot of ways it is, but I was thinking about like, if you were to, genericize this idea and sort of remove the specifics around music, this is kind of what employment generally is sort of turning into, right? Like everyone has more fractured income streams and having to chase these things down. And so I kind of like this idea as a blueprint for, you know, can we combine some form of aggregation or organization with cash flow smoothing as a recipe for other industries as well. Because I think historically, it's been sort of separated into different areas. And certainly in financial services, we've broken it out into their own areas. But I wonder if there's more of a vertical specific play where you meld these things together as a value proposition, go to a specific segment of the market and say, don't worry about your income, we'll worry about it for you. And I I wonder how broadly appealing that could be. So yeah, there's a company called Carrot,
1: K-A-R-A-T, they I do that mostly yeah. for creators. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a company Creative Juice that Mr. Beast backed that was looking to do yep. something similar on the creator yep. side. But so, yeah, like what's the attack angle here and what's the wedge product? Is the is aggregation it? a piece of it or all of it? And is the lending actually the bigger piece? Because yep. to your point, I was looking at SoFi's results earlier today and hmm. you know their student lending is way up because it's the time of the year for it. But also, yep. their student lending is to individuals with an average FICO of seven eighty one and a median income of one hundred eighty thousand dollars. Right? What a great wedge product if you're building a bank and you're going <laughs> to totally. wrap things around like yep. that's phenomenal. And when you look at it and you go, "Oh, that's kind of neat." So what's the, in this interest rate environment, when people have gone, oh, maybe interchange wasn't the only way to make money, then what's that What's that wedge product? And earned wage access, is that it? Uh, is that the right mess for? Is this actually cash flow smoothing? Is it more lending to a business? And what does that look yeah, like for, for broader freelancer gig worker spaces? I think it's mm-hmm. a really interesting question. No, I totally agree. Simon, give us your second one. Okay, I was torn between two, but I'm going to do one called Cluver. C-L-O-O-V-E-R. They are Mm. embedded climate financing. So they provide one-click solutions to anybody selling solar or battery or heat pump or EV charging equipment for homes. And this, so it's like a buy now, pay later experience. So it enables the merchant to increase sales by up to 30 percent increase customer lifetime value increase their average Mm -hmm. order value all of the standard buy now pay later stuff but it's positioned more as a subscription and yes there's a credit check and full kyc before up uh, installing the equipment so it's not really buy now pay later in that sense now why did i like this climate Financing is really hard and really expensive at the last mile, unless there's some sort of lending around it. And I know there's a bunch Mm -hmm. of tax incentives, but that's for smart people who can manage the write-offs. Red. And there's a bunch of people trying to get into climate lending, but I thought this was a really great way to to kind of package it. And remember, so this is a Germany-based business. Mm-hmm. Europe is in the middle of an energy crisis. Mm-hmm. Germany does not have a bunch of nuclear. They're very reliant on oil. They were very dependent on that sort of capability when you know Russia cut off the pipelines. Mm-hmm. But there's this kind of real last mile problem if i'm going to get equipment installed i need tradespeople to do it the install the whole ecosystem's just kind of a bit of a mess but the consumer incentive at the end of it is really great like you will mm-hmm. save oh, 60% sure. on your energy bill but you're going to have this massively high upfront cost especially in germany where there aren't many government incentives to go do this stuff mm-hmm. so why don't we just smooth that for you? And why don't we embed that at the checkout? And then why don't we wrap around that? Oh, and then we're going to help you find an installer and we're going to help you with the delivery and we're going to help with all of that. So it builds this like ecosystem that sort of sits around it. So I thought this was really cool, solving a problem that needs to be
0: solved. And frankly, who doesn't want to save 60% off their energy bill? The thing you touched on there that really resonates with me is whenever there's an area where the economic case, the ROI is like blindingly obvious, where you're just, to your point, why doesn't everyone have solar panels? It just makes sense, right? It's just like they pay for themselves. They make you feel good because you're helping the planet. Like it's so, so obvious that everyone should have them. And so like the natural follow-up question is like, well, why don't they? If it's so obvious, if the ROI just writes itself, why doesn't everyone have this? And to your point It's because the friction associated with getting it is just hard enough that most people don't persist through it, right? And so the idea of applying software as a service-like mentality of we're just going to remove every obstacle, we're going to smooth out every part of this, we're going to make this whole experience just a delight to do— And yeah, sure, you're going to pay us a little bit more for that. It's going to cost someone in the value chain, whether it's the merchant or the consumer or whatever. Someone's going to pay a little more for that. But that's okay because the margin is huge because the ROI is massive. It's not a cost thing that's holding people back from doing this. It's not, oh, my God, we couldn't possibly sustain one more mouth to feed. This isn't banking as a service. This is... The ROI is tremendous. Everybody wants this. And there's just a little too much friction. So I really like the idea of applying that consumer BNPL sort of as a service layer to this last mile problem and say, you know, let's just make this incredibly easy. To your point, I mean, I wonder if the installer thing is an even bigger opportunity sort of post-purchase than the buy now, pay later and financing part where it's like, yeah, we're going to help you buy it. But everything that happens after that we're just going to make as simple as possible so that it's a no brainer to do this because again the core economic case and you know values based case is already made the sort of the project management side of home improvement is
1: just yes. the worst it's brutal bit of it. it's brutal uh, it's gross so i click one button and then it just like these tiny little minion robots show up and it just sort of happens and then it shows up at my house and then they pick they help me pick somebody yes concierge stuff Mm -hmm. make that make sense for me and the buy now pay later business case for the merchant has written itself time and time again which is sure sure, you're gonna pay extra to acquire this customer you're gonna lose some of the discounting you know some Mm -hmm. of your margin but you're going to sell more and they're going to buy more products at checkout. So net-net, your revenue actually goes up versus not having this in the first place. So it is like a win-win if done right. The last point I thought about this was kind of interesting is how many banks are now trying to offer point-of-sale lending as a service or try to get into that buy-now-pay-later type of experience? And how many you know, fintech infrastructure providers are enabling banks to be able to do this. And where are the uh, where's the loan growth going to come from in banking? As, you know, the traditional consumer pools start to look a little bit softer, as yeah. maybe small businesses look a little bit softer into a tightening credit economy. Solar and energy, it feels like a really good one that you could just go attack and go do something with if you've got the balance sheet
0: capacities to go do it. No, I totally agree. And I think to your point, I mean, I think it was U.S. Bank last week at Money 2020 announced they were launching their own point-of-sale lending business. It's not totally clear if they're focused on a, a specific vertical, but I could see this being a really good area, right? Because the balance sheet isn't the problem usually, right? Normally, there's plenty of money to lend. It's finding areas where that lending makes sense, where the market is growing, where there's a very strong business case for doing this. And and we just need to add you know, I I think the the ideal lending business in any case is where's an area where if we just sprinkle some excess capital on this, it'll just go nuts and go crazy. And I think, it's there's every reason in the world to think that like clean energy is maybe the number one area where we just need to sprinkle a little bit more of that magic capital and see what happens i
1: just love the visual image that came into my head of like what happens if i ask an ai to generate sprinkling capital around i've got cakes <laughs> in my mind i, I didn't know that's like it's a whole thing capital is sprinkles who knew uh, I, I that's good right that's like some dude it's almost like you're you've got this like writing brain and you've got this ability to come up with catchy things it's really annoying you should stop that
0: oh go do something with it make it your job not to turn this into a compliment off but um your ability to like turn all of these companies into taglines that are super compelling and i don't need to know anything else because you just explained it in three words that annoys me so please stop it can i do my last company where you promise not to do that i'll give it a go but i am a know-it-all (laughs) <laughs> um, which if
1: you, you watched Peppa Pig is also what Ellie the Elephant is. She's a know-it-all
0: as well. So, Got it, got it, got it. Yeah, my son is pulling me into Peppa the Pig whether I want to be there or not. So I'll soon be able to trade references with you on that front very, very quickly. But my last company is one called HyperCard. Very early, I think they just sort of pulled the cloak of invisibility off at Money 2020. So not one that I think folks have been talking about a lot, but thought you'd find them interesting, Mr. Taylor, because they are doing a consumer credit card powered by employers. So kind of a weird hybrid concept here, but it's not a corporate card, so it's not competing with the ramps of the world. It's also not a standard consumer card where you're going to be going out and trying to just sort of acquire customers directly in a B2C fashion. This is essentially, I, I guess the easiest way to think about it would be a co-branded card for employers so you know i'm working for workweek and workweek decides to offer a credit card and it's a credit card that i as an employee get i am personally responsible for paying it for using it i can use it for whatever things i want but one of the nice things about it is that it can essentially be a vehicle to make it easy for me to access all of the perks and benefits that i get through workweek so for example one of the ones that we have is unlimited book orders through amazon so if you want a book buy a book and we'll reimburse you which is a lovely benefit the challenge with that is that today there's no sort of very smooth way for me to do that. And so I have to submit an expense report. That's kind of like a whole thing. I have to, you know, sort of go through like different internal employee portals to be able to manage that and other benefits. The idea here is that you can link all of your benefits as an employee directly to the card. So when I swipe my card virtually and use it with Amazon to buy books, that just automatically triggers, hey, this is a benefit and we're going to push over sort of a reimbursement to Alex. Or alternatively, in the case of actual like business expenses where, you know, hey, I travel a lot and most of the time the travel is just going to go on the card and it's me doing it. But in this particular case, I'm traveling for work and I need to be reimbursed. Hey, just keep using your personal card. Keep racking up uh, rewards. But in the app, we will have built-in expense management functionality, and you can just submit those expenses as you have them, and then we'll just push the reimbursement directly back to you. So it uses the card as a vehicle to get all of the benefits into the hands of consumers, make sure they're actually using them or employees I should say, and then same thing for reimbursement for work expenses. They have an offboarding process as well, and so if you leave the company, they can convert you from that company-specific card to a more general sort of just all-purpose hypercard that you can continue to use. And so they sort of handle all of the offboarding and they have a very it sounds like kind of white glove approach to customer service as well, so that if the employee has any questions or has any problems, you know, they're right there sort of sitting on top of their partner bank and ready to help with those. What do you think?
1: Hmm. My understanding is, I think it's Gusto, offers something quite similar to this, but it is designed primarily as a corporate card, as you say. So you can have the customer-branded Corporate card. So mm-hmm. you work for Workweek and it's your expense management card. It just has a Workweek logo on it and it right. looks and feels like something that you get from RAMP or Brex or Mercury or whoever. Mm-hmm. That's different, as you say. This is, well, I'm still going to end up putting stuff on my personal card just because A I forgot or B I didn't know where it was or C, I forgot it was somewhere in the middle ground. You know, it's like right. actually, oh, I forgot I could claim for that. Okay. But I just, you know, my personal card is in Amazon anyway. So like that's what just sort of happened. Oops, and now I need to turn this into a so it deals with the Oopsie. Is that a big enough pain point for enough people to to want it? For enough companies? Is that a big enough perceived pain point? Mm-hmm. I think it could get really interesting where you start getting into healthcare payments where you've got those benefits yep. where you've got yep. a big one-off item and you have a you know sort of semi-freelance relationship with the employer or the company and they provide some of the health care but not all of it or you've got some separate insurance thing like there's a whole bunch of stuff and spend where it could work but i'm really struggling to see how you stick the landing on this as not a payroll and benefits provider like The perfect people to offer this would be a Gusto, an ADP, Mm -hmm. like a Rippling, those kind of guys, where it's like, here's your corporate card, here's your personal card that also gets you your corporate benefits. And then, in order for it to compete as your personal card day to day, it has to be better than whatever you're using day to day. So is it better than your Amex where you're racking up those rewards and those miles and those whatever? Is it better than that Sapphire card that people will crawl through ice and fire to go get and <laughs> hot coals? You're competing directly with those. Yeah, for sure. And so like, is this a niche within a niche? Is it a big problem? Do I just not have the problem and I have observer bias? Like, Where do you net out on this?
0: Yeah, I think those are all the right questions, right? I mean, I... I think it's, in a weird way, kind of a product designed for a different age, in a sense, too, right? Because the other thing I was thinking about is your identity used to be a lot more wrapped up in who you worked for, I feel like. And so, like this was like yeah. the era of like, you know, retire after forty years, get a gold watch. All of my best friends are also my coworkers, and I've worked with them for decades. Like, there was a version of the world that looked like this where having a essentially a co-branded card, Uh, much in the same way, I guess, that like credit unions formed around certain large employers like Boeing, sort of a similar concept there, like financial services for employees of companies where employment is a major part of your identity for your whole life. That I think makes a lot of sense. And that, that I think could compete with the Chase Sapphires of the world, because, you know, kind of in the same way that there's a segment of folks out there that have the you know, Boston Celtics credit card because I'm a huge Celtics fan or, you know, whatever. There are co-branded card plays that tie a little bit into identity where people choose to go with that because they love that thing so much. I just don't know that people feel that way about employers anymore. And so maybe they're trying to sort of bring that world back. I mean, obviously from a retention and not having to sort of constantly be hiring people and replacing people, that'd be nice, I think, for employers if they could get back to that. But I'm not sure... This can catalyze that by itself. And if it can't, I have a lot of the same questions you do in terms of like distribution and who do you talk to? I think the other thing I underestimated when I first sort of started thinking about like fintech as a employer benefit or employee benefit is it's been much harder to sell into employers than I think fintech companies thought originally. Before it was like, oh, this makes a ton of sense. We'll be able to go directly to the the HR people. They'll love this. It's Here are the benefits to the employees. And I, I think conceptually the case makes sense. But in the real world, it seems like that's been a really hard sale to make. And maybe it's because HR people don't make these kind of decisions. Maybe they're focused on other things or they don't prioritize this. But That sales cycle seems way harder than what I think we thought, you know, three, four, five years ago. And so how you make this sale and, like, how difficult that is and, you know, which maybe, like, verticals of employers do you start with or does this make sense in a particular area? Like, to me, those are some of the unanswered questions. I will also say... Just looking at their website, they appear to be very early. And again, I think they just removed the cloak of invisibility, but there's not a lot of details on the card network that they're working with, the sponsor bank. And so this might be a little cart before the horse in terms of them still figuring some of this stuff out. Interesting.
1: Well, hopefully they do figure it out because... It's got me curious. I'm like looking up a lot and scratching and trying to figure it out. Yes. And it could whenever that's the case it means probably need to think about it more. Like yes. it's, I don't think it's an instant Marcus spam and delete type of thing, but no. I also don't know that it I'm immediately seeing where the value is. And maybe that's just in, you know, like my lack of understanding or maybe it's in, like, it really isn't there. Maybe it's somewhere in between, but there could be something.
0: And so that's why we like these things. They kind of push you. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the thing that jumped out to me was like, a consumer card brought to you by your employers. Like, I don't think I've seen that before. And I always like ones where I'm like, you know, that specific one, I don't think I've seen that before. And this is definitely one of those. So no, I think I share your questions and yeah, hopefully we get some answers. Do you want to spend a couple minutes at the end here manifesting a couple fintech ideas? Let's manifest. Please be my guest, sir. Okay, I will go first. Um, So I've been thinking about open banking as one is wont to do when 1033 is in the air. And specifically the question I've been thinking about is, where does the stack for open banking evolve we spent so much time doing connectivity and coverage and like you know data aggregators have just been sort of at war for years with banks and other providers going like we need data we need it to work we need it to be consistent so like connectivity and coverage the bottom of the stack has been where we've spent all of our time however again theoretically and who knows if this actually happens 1033 and the regulation around this should make the bottom of the stack a little more stable at some point point. and again we're a long way from that there'll be plenty of drama in between then and then and uh, and now but in theory that should free up companies to move up the stack a little bit and so what do you build you know what are the next layers of this volcano to use sort of plaid <laughs> terminology and uh as you're sort of thinking about what those next layers are i've been trying to sort of map it back to The sort of standard credit bureau world, which is where I come from. That's a lot of my background. And so I know that space pretty well. And I've been thinking about what are some sort of parallels in the credit bureau space and the traditional credit scoring world that might apply to the open banking space, because it's a new set of data. But functionally, the processes we use to interact with data and use it to make decisions in financial services. Those processes probably aren't going to change a ton. It's just we're integrating new data and, you know, new tools into that same set of processes. So one of the areas I've been sort of thinking about is attribute creation. So this is taking raw data and then turning it into useful building blocks that can then feed into modeling and sort of other data science exercises. So it's taking raw data and make it into usable blocks that you can then assemble things out of larger financial institutions that view sort of the decisions they make as kind of a proprietary area that they like to invest in. They have these massive data science teams, and a lot of times they don't want your standard attributes, right? And so I think what we're going to see in the really immediate term and what we've already seen companies like, you know, Prism and uh, Nova Credit and others build are, you know, and even Plaid and, and Finicity and others are sort of the standard attributes. Like, this is how you calculate cash flow. This is how, you know, uh, sort of total up gross income versus net income, that kind of stuff. However, sophisticated companies are going to go well beyond those standard attributes they're going to want to build their own attributes and find sort of ways to do that and there's actually a lot of operational challenges around building attributes deploying attributes modifying attributes applying sort of governance processes to attributes across A large financial institution where there might be different departments that are reusing the attributes or tweaking them and then deploying them in a slightly different way. So I think there's a whole level of the stack that needs to get built out here. And the analog on the credit bureau side is the Experian attribute toolbox, which is not a product that most people know, but I can tell you it is freakishly well used and sort of omnipresent in the traditional credit scoring world. Everybody uses it because it solves these key problems around getting access to standard attributes, building custom attributes, and critically deploying attributes into production. And so I think that someone is going to build this attribute as a toolbox, as a service really for open banking and for this new stack that's getting built. And to me, that's a product I'd like to get see built sooner rather than later.
1: There's a whole bunch of companies that exist to quote, and I'm putting air quotes around this, which Mm -hmm. is fix plaid, right? So not that plaid is broken, but that they make it, they'll cleanse it, they'll normalize it, and they'll make it use case ready as what you're describing as an attribute, what a machine learning engineer would describe as a feature, a machine learned feature. So for example, you might want to have something where you're going to aggregate this, the amount of X that has happened type yep. of events, income events for yep. accounts like this over the past 90 days. I don't know. It could be an aggregation. It could be account. It could, could be all kinds of stuff that are machine learned or uh-huh. insight driven, although it's just logic driven, right? Yeah, you it's have just intuitive. These f- yeah. It's these features, it's these bits of logic that I need to run on this cleansed data. Right. So let me wind back for a second. There's providing the raw data... Yep. Then there's like cleansing it and making sense of it and making it actually usable. Mm-hmm. That's sort of already happening a lot in the yeah. aggregation space. And then there's making it use case specific. And this is where the competition kind of plays out a little mm-hmm. bit more. And there are companies that do it as specialists. There are companies that do it as use cases. But you're sort of saying that this move towards the sort of the attributes or the the machine learned feature store is is really really key. And 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 I I gotta say uh, with my day job hat on at Sardine, that's something we see right. So. Sardine competes with, as many of its peers do, the younger fraud prevention companies compete with the older providers by saying, We'll give you access to our raw data, mm-hmm. we'll give you access to the raw data and cleansed version of it. We'll also give you access to our machine learned features. Because if you have a data science team, you probably haven't built all the fe- the thousands and thousands of features. That we've built and yeah. you probably haven't trained models for the past three or four years to look for these types of fraud on this data set that we have and that's going to be useful to you Is but it- you might not want to consume it the way we have it you might want to do something else with it because it- you're lending underwriting with it or you're yep. using it in a kyc process like how you use it will vary but for this type of risk you want this type of machine learned feature or this type of attribute yeah that space i think applies to any financial services data problem more Uh broadly, which is how do I cleanse, normalize, and make use case ready? And that make use case ready as a feature store, I think is something that very few are actually doing well. And it's something that because i have proximity to a team of data scientists and a ceo who is a double phd in data science they're like weirdly obsessed about that stuff <laughs> but as you speak to any you know like in in the brain food world as i speak to ctos and founders it's the thing that they all want is hey. i want access to the data some of the time but mm-hmm. a lot of the time i just want the
0: features that i can pull in and kind of remix and that's the powerful thing yeah exactly yeah the remixing is huge and then you know the other lens to this just real quickly is there's design time, which we've been talking about, which is like, hey, I want to explore the data. I want to find the the best sort of inputs and variables and attributes. And that's all happening sort of in design time when you're thinking about how best to make a decision. But then there's the runtime component of it, too, which is, OK, now we know what our model going to do. We know what data we're going to pull in. And for every part of that, we need a runtime component that can execute and can give me that it can do it really quickly and really easily. And so, again, from an attribute perspective, you know, where are these attributes being calculated? How is that getting deployed into production? How is it running in production? And how easy are you making that? Because, again, kind of goes to what we've been talking about as a broad theme. But no one wants to spend time or cycles doing that because we already did all the design time stuff where we're figuring it out and being smart and. Clapping each other on the back because we're brilliant. Once we're done with that and we get into production, I just want it to work. And so I think one of the missing elements here is what are the runtime components that need to support this emerging design time ecosystem? And in open banking, I don't really see much of that in place today. Ooh, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. It is. It is. <laughs> yeah, that'll be I'm gonna that'll pre- be our like bonus podcast when you're you know, up in the middle of the night and you call and you're like, hey, man, like, let's just record, you know, something. we're not sleeping, but like, yeah, can we just riff on something? So that'll be like a not fintech investment advice, like midnight hour rant that we can go on.
1: The after hours version. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, 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 let's do that. Uh, that'll be the happy hour version. Exactly. Um, so I'm going to briefly manifest if you'll allow me. So, so yes, the thing I want to manifest is 1033.0 for reg reporting or for supervision. Oh my gosh, I love this idea already. You know, like the amount of PDFs that you have to send to regulators and the amount of PDFs that regulators have to receive, like why can't we just have a... I guess it's more of an FDX rather than a 1033, but I think you need both, Yeah. which is what's the standard for reporting this data? Because the rules, in theory, has sort of given you this. We need these bits of data, and the complication with all of this is, well, where this bank gets it from in this system will vary because the world is complicated and the world Mm -hmm. is hard. Yeah, okay, the world is complicated, but simple is beautiful, And so what's the abstraction here? What's the low-hanging fruit? What's the stuff that everybody's going to need to be able to do? What's the version one of the iPhone that doesn't even have 3G, that doesn't even support da-da-da-da, that doesn't even have copy and paste? Like, There's a version of this that you could ship that will have enough value to enough people that's worth doing. Is it 1033? Is it FDX? But the amount of overhead in reg reporting, the amount of capture that exists because of reg reporting, the amount of complexity for all involved, the amount of economic crime and terrorism and human trafficking we're not capturing because law enforcement doesn't know what that SAR means because it's not linked to that bit of data. Yeah. Like, oh my goodness, the data quality issue in banking data is bad in government, it's a whole other thing. And where those two meet in the middle, that is an opportunity for supervisory tech that needs multi-stakeholder engagement. Somebody asked me once, what would I build if I could build anything? I said, that's probably it from a purpose standpoint, because I think it would have the most meaningful impact. But also, I would never do it unless I believed I had the buy-in and the ability to execute on it, which as of
0: right now, I don't think I have and I think would be extremely hard to get. Hence, manifesting it. We're manifesting it. That's right. Well, no, I agree with you. I mean, the thing I've always thought is from a regulator's perspective – what would you prefer? Okay, every quarter, you get an update on these data elements in this really like terrible format that you have to go through. And it's all retroactive, and you have to comb through it and try to look for problems. And then you layer on top of that, these annual supervisory exams, where you're going in and asking a bunch of questions and having to fill out questionnaires, like, would you rather consume that? Or Would you rather have a dashboard that in real time is feeding in all of the data that you need to see from all of the financial institutions that you oversee? There's a set of models that sit on top of that data that flag things that are out of bounds or that are things that you should be concerned about and look at. And that makes it easier for you to spot problems. It makes it less painful for the financial institution to deal with problems and maybe even gives them – and this is like how you start to kind of push the rock up the hill – maybe it gives them some limited form of safe harbor – for like fines where it's like, if you are sharing this data proactively, we are going to be able to catch things faster, which means your liability for making mistakes or having problems is lessened somehow, like there has to be a way to do that. But like, if I'm a regulator, that's what I want is I want data feeding in and models evaluating the data and for my people to be much more empowered to do their jobs
1: i want a dashboard and um, you made me think of a point there which is i think crucial with any regulation which is regulation starts with the punishment and it very rarely offers the incentive it very rarely offers the carrot the the thing that you could go do that makes it better yeah and to your point 1033 is all stick it's all hey banks you're getting no revenue out of this you have to do it and you got to absorb the cost and as a bank you're like oof So what's my upside? Where do I get to benefit? It's like I can compete with people that have got better tech than me in theory, but in reality, we know that's not the case. This is just a banks are bad type of move. And so maybe not doing that is the answer here. Let's manifest some carrots while we're at it. I know that was the last thing I manifested, but... Uh,
0: Yeah, you know, I'm bringing it back. It's a classic. That's good. Well, now I'm hungry because I want carrots. And that was, I think, an excellent place to end. Mr. Taylor, we may not see you for a little bit, depending on how things go, but you will be back and you'll be, I know, extraordinarily busy with like multiple projects happening at the same time, even while your most important project is also manifesting. So we wish you a great deal of luck. We will speak to you soon. And thank you so much for taking the time. This was awesome. Thank you for having me, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.